Amen. Matthew chapter 11. I know you're already there. I thank everyone for coming out this morning. And I hope and pray that you had a blessed week. And I hope and pray that the Lord would meet with us this morning again in our text in Matthew chapter 11. I did send an email out coveting your prayers for this text because there has been so much confusion and corruption of this text. And I pray that God would enable me to declare it clearly and that the Holy Spirit of God would be our guide and our teacher in these truths, for they are of themselves amazing and yet so awesome and overwhelming that we should be greatly humbled by them. And I hope and pray as God's children we are, and I hope and pray that if you're here without Christ, you would hear the warnings and woes of Christ. And as you hear those, I pray that you might also hear one of the most glorious invitations to sinners ever recorded in the Word of God from the Son of God Himself. Come unto me, all ye who that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let us look at our text, Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 20. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Now watch in our text what Christ does. And listen closely because it is amazing. After pronouncing such woe and such severe judgment upon these cities, listen to the words of Christ. And at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. What an amazing declaration, especially after pronouncing such woes and judgments upon these cities. When you first read this text, you might say it's strange that after pronouncing such woes upon these cities and the divine promise of a greater judgment for their not repenting, that Christ would at that time answer and thank the Father that He's hid these things from these cities and revealed them unto babes. One might think that's a little morbid of itself. Why would Christ pronounce such woes and judgment and then turn around and look to the Father and thank Him for hiding such things from such people, yet revealing it unto babes? Christ gives the Father glory for everything, even the damnation and condemnation and destruction of the wicked. God's sovereignty is above all things. And Christ bows Himself to the will of the Father 
and submits him and these people to the sovereignty of God. Such a message is very few or not heard much amongst many Christians today. And yet I believe we need to understand what our Lord is saying here. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Listen to him. Listen to the words of Christ. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. You say, how could that be good in the sight of God? Because God has created all things, like we said last week, for himself. Christ would abrade these cities for not repenting because of the mighty works He'd done amongst them, yet He thanks His Father for keeping these things hid from them. Think about that. He holds them accountable because He repented not. You're going to have a greater judgment in the day of judgment. He holds them accountable. He holds them responsible. And yet He turns around and thanks God for hiding it from them. Seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? How can man be responsible? How can man be accountable and yet God be the author of hiding it from them? Beloved, the sovereignty of God is not bound. That's why he says, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. All things, dearly beloved, listen to the words of Christ, all things in heaven and upon earth, are subject to His divine power and will. All things are subject to the sovereign power and will of God. Even the damnation of the wicked, even the hardening of the wicked, even the hiding of things from the wicked, they're all subject to His divine will and purpose. Christ doesn't even try to explain that. Man would try to reconcile these these contradictions. How can man be responsible and then God be uh, God be the author of them? Him hiding things from them. How can these things How can these things be put together? Christ doesn't even try to defend that nor declare it. He just says this, and this is lovely. These words are glorious. Even so. Even so. Do you hear the do you hear the sovereignty in the voice of the Son of God even so? It's almost like Paul's what is man that he should answer against his creator? Who art thou, O man? Christ says even so. There's no exclamation for this. I'm not giving you a, a definition of why. I'm just saying even so because, Father, it seemed good in thy sight, because this is good in your sight. This is what you have sovereignly ordained. Therefore, let it be. Two things which men foolishly hold to be inconsistent with each other are clearly revealed in our text. Namely, that though sinful man is accountable for his own eternal destruction, you did not repent. Even such accountability, listen to this, this is what he's saying. Even such accountability is subject to the sovereign, sovereignty of God's perfect will. Even man's accountability is subject to God's sovereign will. Nothing is without the bounds of God's sovereignty. Are you listening? This is what Christ saying. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. <laughs> he holds them accountable, but at the same time, he, he declares the sovereignty of God in that accountability. 
Isn't it strange how men try to reconcile these two apparent differences? Well, the only way we can reconcile this is God has ordained from the beginning of the world some people to hell. Christ isn't saying that. In our text, Christ says, you're going to have a greater judgment because you didn't repent. But you didn't repent because the Father hid these things from you. Preacher, we can't reconcile those things. Wonderful. There are some things about God that you cannot reconcile. Simply by faith we have to believe it. Man is accountable for his own destruction, yet God is sovereign in that as well. Man wants to put it in a box, put it under a certain doctrine, a theological discourse, superlapsarianism, hyperlapsarianism, and he wants to be able to define everything about God. There's some things you cannot define about God. You simply have to, like Christ say, even so, Father, so it seemed good in your sight. Leave it alone. the foolishness and ignorance of man that he would seek to know the mind and thoughts of God. I love how Christ says that. You hid him from the wise and prudent, has revealed unto babes, even so, Father, <laughs> for so it seemed good in thy sight. That's the explanation. That's the end of it. I love it. I love it. God is God. And sometimes we stand amazed. We should many times stand amazed before the greatness and majesty and sovereignty of God. Notice how he says, because thou hast hid these things. It doesn't say that he has ordained these things, though we know God ordained. He says and uses the words, hid these things. All men are born into darkness and blindness. I hope we understand that. All men is born into sin. We're, we're dead in sins. We're in enmity with God. We sit in darkness. Christ merely proves the sovereignty of God. He's hid these things from the wise and prudent. Hmm. But he's revealed them unto babes, infants in Christ, the simple-hearted, the simple-minded. It's God's sovereign right to hide or to reveal. So Christ is saying, you've hid him from the wise and prudent, and you revealed him unto babes, even so, Father, for so it seems good in thy sight. It is sovereign right. Listen to me, dearly beloved. It is, sovereign, it is his sovereign right to hide or reveal. And no man should question that. All things, verse 27, are delivered unto me of my Father. All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knoweth the Son, knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will, there's that word again, reveal him. You see, the revelation of Christ is nothing man can obtain on his own. The light that shines deep into the heart of man is a light that must be divine and it must be of God. And Christ is clearly making that statement. Christ is clearly declaring the sovereignty of God, the right of God's sovereignty in all things. Yet this whole discourse was not for the prophet. Listen to me. It was not for the prophet or benefit of these already condemned cities. You remember the feeding of the 5,000 we looked at? Christ didn't feed the 5,000 merely for the 5,000. Everything Christ did in the Gospels, everything God does in His Word is for His glory and the benefit of His people. 
The reason Christ announces these woes is not for the benefit of these cities who were condemned, but for the benefit of His elect, because verses 25 to 27 proves that, and then verse 28, He calls His elect out. You see that? In the picture, under the shadow of God's wrath, come unto Me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's an invitation to His elect. These woes are for His people, not for the benefit of the lost. Though the lost should listen very closely. Now, why do you think Christ is declaring that in verses 25 to 27 about God's sovereignty and about nobody coming to the Son or the Father unless, they know, unless He draws them or reveals them? He's proven to them that it's impossible without God for anyone to come unto the Father or the Son. Same thing we heard in John chapter 6. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank the old Father. Lord of heaven and earth, I thank Thee. What a strange thing to thank God for. Beloved, it's not uncommon throughout Scripture to read of God's righteous judgment followed by some of the warmest exhortations to repent and turn to God. It's not uncommon. You see that throughout Scripture. You'll hear of God's severity, God's judgment, God's righteousness. And then following that, you'll hear the warmest exhortations to repent and to turn to God. You remember the woes here, of course, on these cities. But you remember the woes on the Pharisees in Matthew 24? Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Immediately after that, he stands on the hill above Jerusalem and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I gather you under my, under my wings as a hen with chicks, but ye would not. You see how he held them accountable? And yet he said he would have, but they would not. Preacher, how do, we, how do we bring those things together? You don't. You just have faith they're true. They seem and appear inconsistent. How can Christ stand over Jerusalem and weep over a city that's going to crucify Him, over a city He knows is condemned, and yet He says, Ye would not, but I would have. I hear the hyper-Calvinists crying out right now. <sighs> Trying to reconcile those differences. <laughs> what do you say, preacher? I say this, even so, Father, for so it seems. Seem good in your sight. Listen, I've been preaching the gospel for 40 years. Preached the gospel on the streets of Germany for 14 years to some of the, the most, some of the most hardest drug addicts and alcoholics that one could know. I mean, junkies that go back years. And it was a delight to give them invitation to come unto the Father, come unto me. Christ said, because I believe in the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God or the doctrine of divine election didn't hinder me from presenting the gospel like Christ did here. But the sovereignty of God and the election of God is what encouraged me and excited me to preach. Come unto me. How shall the elect be called out if they don't hear the message? Yes, I know God sovereignly hides things from some. I know that. The Bible says that. But I don't know who that some is. And so God says, call them all. Let me draw them unto myself. You call them all. And we'll see that in a, we'll see that in a few minutes. But who is he calling? It's not to all. It's those who are laboring and heavy laden 
under the burden and guilt of sin. Why do they labor and are heavy laden under the burden and guilt of sin? Because the Father has taught them, John 6, and the Son has drawn them to Himself. Do you know, listen to me, dearly beloved, that's why we sang that song just a minute ago. Do you know that the great mercy and grace of God in Christ, the great mercy and grace of God in Christ, is never so clear and desired than in the light of His righteous judgment and wrath? Let me say that again so that you're clear. The great mercy and grace of God in Christ is never so clear and desired than in the light of His righteous judgment and wrath. Why do you think this invitation comes in the shadows of such woes, of such wrath and punishment? Oh, listen to me. I'm talking about true conversion here because there's a lot of fakes. There's a lot of people that are truly not saved. No, nothing, nothing about being laboring or heavy laden under the guilt and shame of sin. For of God in wrath, according to Habakkuk 3.2, for if in wrath God remembers mercy, that's what it says, in wrath, God remembers mercy, then surely, beloved, it is by His wrath we see His great mercy. Mercy. What is mercy? It's undeserved. What's undeserved? Grace in the light of wrath or judgment. So we see God's great mercy and grace in the light of His wrath. How did we come to Christ? We came to Christ because we understood the wrath of God upon our sins. And so we were laboring and heavy laden under the guilt of that wrath of those sins which called upon such wrath. And then we've seen the mercy and grace of God in Christ Jesus. It's amazing that on the cross of Calvary you can see both of these things so wonderfully, so wonderfully and gloriously revealed. We sang that song, stricken, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Listen to the words. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Look at Calvary. Look at the punishment God laid on His Son. Here you may view it rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the Word, the Lord's anointed Son of Man and Son of God. You see the wrath of God poured upon Calvary. You see God's wrath for our sins laid upon Christ. Yet not only that, but when I survey the wondrous cross, what else do we see in the midst of that wrath? See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose such rich ground? You see on the cross of Calvary, we see the great wrath of God. And then we see mercy remembered. In Christ, the Lamb of God. So you see both of them so wonderfully put together. The wrath of God and the mercy of God. The wrath of God, our sins poured upon Him. And the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God. Oh, beloved. It is in God's wrath that we see the mercy and grace of God in Christ. In wrath, remember mercy. 
never was the wrath of God more manifested than when it was poured out upon his own son on Calvary. Listen to me. Listen to me. Never was the wrath of God more manifested than when it was poured out upon his own son on Calvary. Why? Because he took it all, the cup of wrath, and he drank it, the very dredges of it. And yet in the midst of that great wrath, mercy was great and grace was free. There is in a town just outside of Heilbronn, Germany, where I was pastoring for so many years, and they have an old Catholic church there. And people go into it because it's because of the architect and all that stuff. And so when you go in there behind the pulpit, there's a pit full of human bones stacked upon one edge of just they just buried and they're stacked them up there. It's human bones. And behind them on the wall, there's a huge picture of Christ on Calvary, <clears throat> which I do not condone, but it's there. And it depicts Christ on Calvary and all these evil-looking demons, I mean, wicked, vile-looking creatures all over Christ on Calvary, just circulating, going over his feet, his arms, his legs. And the first time I seen that, I said, you know, that depicts the truth that many people don't understand what really happened on Calvary. Because when God poured out his wrath on our sins, not only was our sins there, but Satan and all his demons were there as well as a horrific scene. And I think if God ever opened our eyes up to see what actually partook on Calvary, it would blow our minds. We wouldn't be able to condone what was going on. We wouldn't be able to hold in what happened on Calvary. That, that evil forces and the wrath of God upon our sins, God's wrath is more manifested upon Calvary than any place else. And yet in the midst of that wrath, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Is the mercy and grace of God. <clears throat> Therefore, in the light of that, <laughs> Christ goes, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You notice he doesn't make that offer to these cities. He said, no, you're going to be more tolerable on the day of judgment for them than it is for you. But after verses 25 and 27, he turns to his elect. He turns to his own. He says, okay, now you that understand the wrath of God, you that understand, come unto me. This amazing invitation, dearly beloved, in verse 28 is not for all. <clears throat> Listen to our Lord carefully. But for all that labor and are heavy labor, come unto me. Most people just leave it at that. But no, Christ says, come unto me, all ye that labor. There's a distinction here. And are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Beloved, it's imperative that we understand the verses connecting the woes pronounced in verses 20 to 24 and the glorious invitation proclaimed in verses 28 to 30. Verses 25 to 27 are imperative that we understand what Christ is saying before he turns to the great invitation in verse 28 because God has hidden these things to the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. So now he turns under, he turns under his own, he turns unto his elect, and he said, now come unto me. 
You've heard the woes. You understand the wrath. You see the wrath of God coming to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. What a great contrast between Christ's woes upon the unrepenting and his warm and loving invitation to all those who labor and are heavy laden. To the former, repentance is hidden. To the other, repentance is revealed. You see the, you see the connection? You've hidden it from them, but you've revealed in the babes. To the former, repentance is hidden. To the other, it's revealed. Isn't that amazing? Amazing? People think they repented of their own. People think that repentance was my own doing. And I'm telling you, repentance was not of your own doing. If you truly repented, it's because God revealed it unto you. And God granted you repentance unto life, as we'll see in a few minutes. It's because God opened your eyes and showed you. This laboring and heavy laden, dearly beloved, it's not a physical, but a spiritual and it's a heavy laden, and it's a laboring under a guilt of sin. Listen to me very carefully. <clears throat> I do want to be clear in this <clears throat> because of the confusion in this day and age, and I'm getting ahead of myself. Mere sentiments, listen to me closely, mere sentiments and emotions, a few tears is not repentance. Sentimentalism is not repentance. At 14... In Colorado, with some young guy singing Kumbaya, my Lord, I wept and professed salvation. Didn't do a thing for my soul. The tears were genuine, but that's all it was, was tears. Sentiments and emotions are not true evidence of repentance. Christ gives us the evidence of true repentance here. Laboring and heavy laden under a sense of guilt and shame for our sins whole lot different than a mere sentimental moving and emotion. <clears throat> Many confuse a moment of sentiment over a heavy and laborious guilt of sin. This is the problem we have in this generation of many churches today when they make their their, their very quick invitation. Well, now we're going to have an invitation. We're going to call you up here. You need to understand that you need Christ. You need to understand that you're sinful. And if you understand that, you come up here. We'll help you. We'll say the sinner's prayer together. And once we say the sinner's prayer together, then you're saved. I had someone do that at work um, just recently. He was talking to a man and just simply asked him if everything's saved. He said, no. She goes, well, do you want to get saved? He said, yeah. She said, okay, well, let's just say a prayer together. And they said a prayer together, and she said, okay, you're saved. This is what makes an altar call so dangerous when men plead or play on the emotions of men, women, and children. Christ tells us the guilt and shame is that leads to repentance. It's laboring and heavy laden under a burden and guilt and shame of sin. Do you know Pharaoh repented? Pharaoh said in Exodus chapter 9 verse 27, after some of the miracles that Moses performed, Pharaoh said, I have sinned this time. Was that repentance? Of course not. I've sinned this time. 
The Bible says Judas repented of himself in Matthew chapter 27. He repented of himself. Many people's repentance is simply because they got caught. Okay, I'm a sinner. He repented of himself. But when he died, he went to his own place. The Bible says Esau found no place for repentance. Though he sought it carefully with tears. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17. Though he sought it carefully with tears. That is a very profound and very humbling truth. He found no place for repentance. But he diligently sought it carefully with tears. And yet, he found no place for repentance. Do you understand what Christ is trying to say in these verses 25 to 30 after these woes? He's, he's saying that God must reveal it. God is the one must reveal such a thing to people and it's the babes. And once he does it, he said, Now come unto me, all you that labor heavy laden, and I will give you rest. An emotional moment of guilt or sorrow is not evidence of true repentance unto life. When Peter went back, after he'd preached the gospel to the Gentiles, Peter went back to report unto the Jews. <clears throat> and when they heard the news, they said, when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. You see that wording? Granted repentance unto life. What does that mean, preacher? It means repentance is a gift of God. You see how Christ is saying here, He's hid it from the wise and prudent, revealed it unto babes, even so, Father, so it seemed good in my sight. And then He turns around and says, okay, now if you've been revealed that, if you understand the wrath of God, if you understand that you need to repent, if you understand that you're laboring and heavy laden under a guilt, sense of guilt and shame, under that burden, come unto me. Bring that burden unto me. Amazing. Labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is he talking about a yoke? You know, a yoke goes around an ox and it just it's burden on their neck. My yoke is easy. Sin's yoke is not. It's heavy. You labor under it. You can't live with yourself. You're not at peace with yourself. I'm telling you, when God begins to convict a sinner, he cannot find peace in themselves. It doesn't matter what they do. They cannot find peace of themselves. You see how God draws people unto himself? He lays this burden of guilt and shame upon them. He lets them understand. He reveals unto them the wrath and the justice of God that you are guilty. You are deservable of punishment by the wrath of God. God is righteous and just, and you're not. Paul said, I was alive without sin, but when sin revived, I died. Wasn't Paul always dead to sin? Yes, every sinner, every man, woman, and child is born dead in sins. But Paul says, I was alive without the law, but then the law came in, sin revived, and it killed me. It convicted me. It troubled me on every side and on every corner, wherever I went, whatever I did, I couldn't get away from the sense of guilt and shame that God was showing upon my heart and my mind. I was laboring under it. I was heavy laden under it. That's true repentance. That's true guilt and shame. That's an understanding of what God's wrath and judgment is and deserving of it. 
Men do not come to Christ because they know not the heavy and laborious yoke of sin. They don't understand that, and they don't understand the heavy yoke of sin. So they don't come to Christ. You know why a lot of people go to church, and then after a while they stop going, and you never see them again, and they never go back to church, and they never talk about God, because they never labored. They were never heavy laden with the guilt of sin and shame. They never took Christ's yoke upon them. So Christ's yoke wasn't easy. You know the hardest thing for a hypocrite to do is try to live the Christian life. You think the way of the transgressor is hard. Try that of a hypocrite. You know what Judas went through? You know why Judas hung himself? It wasn't because of the spur of the moment thing. Judas hung himself because for three years he lived as a hypocrite amongst disciples and amongst Christ. He couldn't stand himself anymore. That's why he hung himself. It's a coward's way out. What is the hope of the hypocrite? There's no hope for the hypocrite. He knows it within their heart. He knows it within himself. There's nothing genuine in me. I do not love Christ as others speak of. I do not love Christ as the Word of God commands me to. I do not know Christ as the Word of God said I should. I know nothing about Him, but my sin and my shame and my guilt continues to cause me labor, and I'm heavy laden with that, and I don't know what to do with that, and it's just a continual burden and sorrow and discomfort to me, and they don't know what to do with it until finally they hear the voice of the Spirit of God through the Gospel come unto me, and they go, that's it. That's the solution. It's hard to believe that some people even today who profess to know the doctrines of grace and the truth of God are ashamed to give any kind of invitation. Let me ask you a question. When God begins to deal with His own elect in the midst of all the sinners, because we're all sinners, when God begins to deal with His elect and then they begin to labor and they're heavy laden because of sin and they don't know what to do with it and they're confused and they're afraid and they're fearful. What is their hope? Well, you better just hope that God elected you. No, that's not the gospel. You know what it is? Under the guilt and shame of that sin, they hear the gospel message of come unto me. Isn't it amazing? Christ says, come unto me. Oh, well, we don't ask people to come unto Why does Christ say, come unto me? But that's not all what he says here. He says, come unto me, all ye labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke and then learn of me. There's three things here. Come unto me, take my yoke, then learn of me. You want to you want to know somebody who's really come to Christ for rest and they've taken the yoke of Christ upon them? They're going to learn of Christ. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly, and ye shall find rest unto your soul. Do you know what the sense of guilt and shame does in an awakened sinner? It gives him no rest, no peace. Until he comes to Christ and takes his yoke and learns of him. Can you identify with these words of Christ finding rest under your souls? Can you can you identify with that? If not, I wonder if you've ever labored and were heavy laden under guilt of sin and shame. 
is more than just an emotional thing. Notice divine blessings and workings of the grace upon God upon all those who truly labor and are heavy laden. Come unto me, take my yoke, learn of me. Isn't it amazing how the Lord says, I'm meek and lowly? Why would he use those virtues? I'm meek and lowly. Why would he use those? Look at how the Lord condescends to the sinner. Listen to this. I'm meek and lowly. Yes, I'm the son of God. Yes, I'm the sacrifice. I'm the Lamb of God. Yes, I'm the one you have to turn to because of your sins. I'm the one that paid the price. But you can come unto me because I'm meek and lowly. I'm, I'm condescending. I'm meek and lowly. I'm meek and lowly. When we begin to realize and understand the great mercy and grace of God in Christ Jesus, then we begin to understand that He's approachable. Are you listening to me? He's approachable. I can come to Christ. I can come to Christ. Why? He's meek and lowly. He's not high upon a throne looking down upon me in great judgment with a, with a rod in His hand fixing to strike a blow on me because I'm a sinner. No, He's meek and lowly. He's condescended down. He's come down to show me salvation. He's come down to embrace me in my sins and forgive me and grant me repentance and give me salvation. In life, come unto me, come unto me. Why do you think he said, how oft would I have taken you as a, as a hen under my wings? You know what a hen does? Protect her children? She covers them with her wings. I'm not an expert. You'd have to ask the Siffords about that. But, you know, it's a sign of condensation. It's a sign of meek and low. This is what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to cover you with my wings. I'm going to embrace you. I'm going to take you unto myself. I'm going to love you first so that you might love me back. We love him because he first loved us. He's approachable. This, these last three verses show the sinner who's laboring under the guilt and shame. He is approachable. You can come to Christ. People say, well, I have to fill out all these boxes before I come to Christ. No, if you're laboring under sin and guilt and shame, come to Christ. Come as you are. That's why he says, for I'm meek and lowly. Yeah. Oh, I'm telling you, there's something about this glorious invitation here in Christ in the midst, in the shadow of all these woes that Christ would grant us such salvation. I pray that we as God's children this morning would be reminded of the great mercy and grace of God in Christ Jesus when he called us under his Son. And I pray that if you know not Christ this morning, I pray that if you're laboring under a sense of guilt and shame, I pray that you'd understand that Christ is approachable. He's made himself approachable. And I pray that you'd come unto him under the labor and heavy ladenness that you have. And he'll give you rest. Take his yoke upon him, upon you, and learn of him. For then truly you shall find rest unto your souls. Uh, rest unto your souls. You ever consider what that means? There is no rest, saith my Lord, to the wicked. They're like a troubled sea.
constantly going up and down. So many people in this world are like this now. They're so afraid and confused. The chaotic things in the world with all the things going on, people are afraid. They're afraid to step out of their door. I have a family member in Germany that won't allow other family members that are not vaccinated to visit her because she's afraid. Because they're not vaccinated, even though they're family, they don't let them in. People's afraid. People's terrified. People's anxious. There's no rest. But let me tell you something. There is rest in Christ. <laughs> I pray God would reveal unto you the blessings of such a rest to yourselves. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you now that you bless the preaching of your word, not only to those whom you've called unto yourself and drawn unto yourself, but I pray for those this morning that may not know Christ, that at this very moment their hearts and their minds and their conscience are convicting them of their not knowing Christ. Lord, they know it. They understand it. And Lord, I pray that you'd give them no rest until they find rest in thee. I pray that, Lord God, the gospel would reach inside of their hearts. And I pray that, Lord, you reveal unto them not only your justice and your wrath for such sins, but in your wrath, I pray that they would see your mercy. And then mercy is found alone in Christ Jesus. May you be honored and glorified in all that we say and do. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.